Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Road to Recovery podcast. This podcast is a platform for education, discussion, and conversations on mental health. I'm your host, Amira Shah, and in this podcast, you'll get to know more about the therapeutic process, insight into life from the perspective of the psyche, and also join me in exploring current issues with other practitioners. I specialize in grief, but I'm always interested in learning about the human experience of the mind, heart, and spirit. So join me on this journey of in-depth learning about ourselves and the world we live in. Hello, everyone. We have a guest with us here today, a colleague and a good friend, speech pathologist Kane Casson. Kane is here to share with us about his work and shed some light on the mental health scene of speech pathology. Hi, Kane. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm an adult speech pathologist. I'm actually currently working in two roles. I work in a hospital as an acute clinician. So we see the people when they're very sick or something has just happened to them. Mm. I also spend a few days a week working in a community-based rehabilitation team. And that is after the patients, or we call them clients now, uh, when they've gone home, they've left, left their hospital or rehab facility, and they are getting more, they're, they're back in their normal life mm. at home and we're to help them with any of their goals to try and get back to a quote unquote usual life after something has happened to them so you have clients that are in-house no inpatient and outpatient clients is, is that what it is something like, like that in my hospital job they are, they are definitely inpatients they okay. are still in the hospitals sometimes still quite unwell mm. the ones i see in the community rehab uh jo- uh that that caseload mm-hmm. they yeah have been discharged from the hospital system mm. and they're just trying to live their life day to days but they still get a little bit of interaction from the healthcare system okay so do you see the clients in the hospital more often or? With my current contract, I'm two days at the hospital and three days at the rehab. But those are actually separate contracts. I just mm-hmm. took on the two different jobs so I could have a full-time <laughs> uh, job and salary. Yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. idea. And you mm-hmm. have like... A- a sense of a different type of experience with both jobs as well. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I get to understand the the patient's uh, whole healthcare journey almost. Because oh, yeah. when we see them in the hospital, it's when something has just happened to them. Mm. And in the community rehab, it's their possibly their last interaction with the healthcare system mm. before they're let loose into the world or <laughs> to fully independent. To, yeah. Perhaps, hopefully they're fully independent, but they are now not dependent on the healthcare system or they won't mm. be getting any further interactions from the healthcare system. That can happen sometimes. Mm. Mm. Well, um, I was also wondering mm. if the patients or the clients that you see in the hospital, mm-hmm. you see them more regularly as in like twice a week or, you know, Okay, yeah. I'll clarify that a bit because the speech pathologist, especially an adult speech pathologist, mm-hmm. uh, our main, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like our caseload or our role is managing communication, obviously, uh-huh. as a speech pathologist. We also manage swallow because uh, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the speech pathologist is a swallow expert. I guess that is because we use a lot of the same muscles and nerves and neural pathways as you do for manipulating your tongue to speak and communicate as you do for when you're preparing food and chewing it up and about to swallow it down. Mm. So in the hospital caseload, a lot of the time we are seeing how people are going. Can they have food and drink safely? Because mm. uh, we, when someone has had a stroke or something quite severe has happened, sometimes you put food or drink into people's mouths mm. and they're not swallowing it safely and some of it's ending up in their lungs. Mm. And that can lead to pneumonia and all sorts of uh, subsequent health com- complications. 
Some people never recover from a pneumonia. So in the hospital acute caseload, uh, we are, our primary concern is making sure people don't get a pneumonia, making sure food and drink is safe for them to eat. Mm-hmm. We're also paying attention to how their communication is going. And that could be many domains. It could be like a dysarthria, which means some sort of weakness of their lips or tongue or jaw. Imagine like a slurring. Mm. Imagine if you can't use half of, if you're paralyzed on one side, of course you won't be able to make all the sounds and communicate as you want. Another issue could be your voice. And that's like when you have a sore throat and you talk like this or you're smoking too many cigarettes or something's happened to you or you got laryngitis. Mm. So that's another role of the speech pathologist. And the one of the more interesting ones is, um, I say, neurological uh, linguistic differences. So that's actually thinking of words, mm. uh, like, thinking of words and understanding like not just words but like uh sounds words utterances whole language so we help out with that part of the actual part of communication the part starts in your brain mm-hmm. the that begins with thinking of an idea and then transferring it into language so i could communicate the idea i'm thinking via my mouth <laughs> to your ears and then you understand it that's the whole language process so with all those different things, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. Mm. And if one of the, one or more of those goes wrong, uh, of course, that can lead to communication breakdowns. So in the hospital, uh, we're primarily managing the swallow, but we're also monitoring the communication side of things. Mm-hmm. Usually when I see a client in the community rehab, their swallow should be pretty stable by then. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually, it's a few weeks or months. It might be touch and go, or they might need new ways to manage uh, how they're going to have food and drink. But it's really by then the person is really noticing that their communication is breaking down for one or many of those reasons, which I I just discussed just now. So uh, when I'm in the community rehab, uh, that's what we're monitoring them. It's what we're trying to rehabilitate. We're trying to, if there is some sort of deficit, we're Mm -hmm. trying to help the person get that back or get that back to uh, a level where they are functional and they can speak or communicate with their loved ones or the people with they interact with day to day. Wow, that's so intricate. There's so many systems involved. Um, and I guess I guess they both, I mean, I, I guess the clients that you see in the hospital have different needs and different priorities from the ones in the community. The ones in the hospital are usually, we call them acute patients, like mm-hmm. something has just happened, usually a stroke, but sometimes they've just been very unwell uh, because of other reasons. Like they might have another illness which has led to catching a pneumonia for other reasons or uh, one illness has one virus or bacterial sort of infection has led to subsequent complications wow. which then might impact on the communication or the swallowing as well wow. but a lot of the patients in the hospital are a lot more higher need than the ones who are more stable mm-hmm. stable enough to have gone home and then they get their community rehab and it's not just a speech pathologist who was involved. Uh, in, we also have the physiotherapist who is, you know, for any sort of mobility, any muscle, muscle sort of issues, for people being able to sit to stand, or also they could be experiencing pain. Mm. Uh, so the physio is involved with that. Uh, we have an occupational therapist, which helps with, the, if the physio does the gross motor movements, the big mm. movements, the standing up and walking, the occupational therapist does the fine motor movements, like the intricate ones like using your fingers to manipulate a pen or to hold a fork mm. or to type these uh, really small precise movements mm. uh, they also help with the arms they help with uh, cognition a lot as well mm. so thinking memory managing their fatigue anything that might need to be done to to, to, to exist day to day also we have uh, social workers which uh very involved in the mental health side of things because we actually don't have psychologists on our team but a lot of people when something has happened to them a stroke or any other sort of illness and sometimes it might be as simple as breaking a leg 
Like mm-hmm. an old lady or an old man has fallen over at the bus stop, they've broken their leg, but that's had a huge implication because like they're now completely dependent. Mm-hmm. So our social worker is the one on the team who helps with people who are having a difficult time managing with anything that's uh, involved with s- since their event, mm-hmm. but they can also help access services uh, within the government, like for, for example, NDIS or My Aged Care, or sometimes there are NGOs which help people at Meals on Wheels, for mm. example, like accessing these services. Right. Um, we also have a leisure therapist. Who's a kind leisure of, therapist. It's true. It's <laughs> what kind, is this? A leisure therapist. It's hard to explain. They are kind of an in-between of all the other uh, clinicians, I guess. But... I guess, for example, if someone has some sort of deficit after they've been sick, after whatever, they've broken their leg or they've had a stroke or had some sort of complex illness, the physio, for example, will help look at using those muscles to get them back. As a speech pathologist, if someone has trouble pronouncing words, we'll give them activities where they can use... Where they can use those muscles so they are able to communicate again, mm. or they can practice thinking of the words that they want to say within a within a conversation. Mm. The occupational therapist might uh, help them use their hands so they can give them exercises so they can use that part of their body or use that part of their cognition or their brain. The leisure therapist is someone who tries to get the people doing the activities they were doing before mm-hmm. but by actually doing it or problem solving uh doing it so say if for example someone's had a stroke and they have trouble using their right hand right. and previously they liked doing some sort of activity like crocheting or knitting right. and the, the the occupational therapist might give them exercises to strengthen those muscles but the leisure therapist will actually sit there with them and during the activity and try to problem solve the activity themselves. And the reason why they do that is because when people are motivated to do... With, mm. Doing the activity which you're interested in is a lot more motivated than doing a related exercise for that. Yeah. To yeah. make an analogy, if I love running... Mm -hmm. I love being outside. I love going up and down hills. I love seeing the dogs and the people. I love running. It's not the same if I just go to the gym Mm -hmm. and do the single leg exercises or both leg exercises, which work those same muscles. Right. So it gives meaning to the recovery. It it does. Yes. And uh, the leisure therapist is, um, I guess, uh, versed in all of our disciplines. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it, it gives them meaning as well. And, and sometimes I guess it's useful for the client who's having these difficulties to actually see how they go with the specific activity that they want to do. And sometimes if they have difficulty with it, they might have to pivot to a newer activity or change it to something else. Or they might need a little help uh, problem solving. Uh, how they can do that activity or something like it. Or perhaps sometimes you might need an extra pair of hands involved. But Oh, there you go. But yeah, the leisure therapist is an interesting role. I've never quite known how to explain it well, but it's someone someone who helps people get back to the activities that they want to be doing Mm. by actually doing that activity. So, for example, if I'm working with someone who has trouble communicating because they love going to, they love going to the coffee shop with their friends and having a chat, mm-hmm. I can do communication activities, mm. but the leisure therapist would actually take right. this person to the cafe and have a chat with them. Mm. And from there, they can see if there's any other barriers which might interfere with the, working towards that meaningful goal. Mm, mm. It reminds me a lot of my time working with um, children who are on the spectrum Mm -hmm. and special needs. Mm -hmm. And I remember having to break down Mm. these tasks to teach them, Mm -hmm. um, the the tasks that we can do quite um, Mm. automatically. Mm. And, you know, to like when to even stop 
pouring the water into the cup how mm. are they going to figure that out mm. with like you know baby 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 mm. steps as in like the line of where they can see okay i have to stop pouring now mm. and things like that mm. um and how to gauge certain things and how to lock the door or unlock the door mm. you know how we're supposed to like move our hands mm. and, and twist and things like that because mm. Um, quite a number of them have problems with um, motor skills, fine motor mm. skills, which is mm. why I worked with an o- occupational therapist as well. Mm. But I used to remember it was such a meaningful mm. um, event mm. when, you know, all uh, almost day in, day out, you learn all these like small little exercises mm-hmm. you practice with them mm. in, in the house or in the room, right? Mm. And then it comes to a point where it's like a, it's like a milestone, you know, it's mm. like a little graduation. We're like, all right, I think now we can go to the supermarket together mm. and I can confidently mm. take the, the child to the supermarket mm-hmm. with me, knowing that he or she will not trash all the, mm. you know, things on the shelves mm. and like start throwing things or start touching people. Mm. Um, and then after that, we graduated to going to restaurants where we can stand in line mm and actually do the things she loves. Mm. So it gave it gave her like meaning, more meaning mm. to behave, uh, to I guess improve her behavioral, um, their behavioral sort of capacities or mm. abilities and things like that and want to work on mm. their skills mm. so that they can actually take that into the real world and enjoy it. Mm. Um, so that was really cool. So for some reason, I thought of that when you talked about the yeah. leisure therapist. Yeah, I guess it, it leisure therapist helps to integrate all the other disciplines. Mm. And for example, if the overarching goal is for a person to go to the cafe and talk with their friends, there's a lot of things involved, just like you had broken down the yeah. supermarket or the restaurant goals. Yeah, like there's it's huge. Fi- physically getting there, mobility-wise, if they need some sort of de- uh, they need some sort of uh, assistive mobility device, the occupa- occupational therapist might be involved. Mm-hmm. If the person has trouble standing up or down, the physio is going to be involved. They have trouble speaking and getting their mm-hmm. ideas out. I'm going to be involved. So the leisure therapist would like instead of looking at the individual components of that, they look at the activity as a mm-hmm. whole. And when you work in the community, do mm-hmm. you partake in some of the activities or rather duties or obligations that the leisure therapist would do? Do you take clients out to I have the shops or something like that? I think a lot of my therapy time is usually clinic-based and we also go to clients' houses because a lot of people who have had strokes uh, aren't allowed to drive. Uh, for sometimes it's for a few weeks, sometimes it's for the rest of their life. Uh, And you can imagine there's all sorts of safety reasons for that involved. Like if someone's vision isn't great or their cognition, their capacity to make responsible decisions has been Mm. uh, impaired. Yeah. Uh, It's not just how you drive, but it's also Mm. reacting to what might happen around you. So part of our role, we're frequently going to people's houses or we meet them halfway or sometimes with some people, we even do telehealth appointments. Okay. If they're agreeable, little by little, people are getting more agreeable to doing the tele-appointments, especially for the clients where I'm just doing a lot of talking. Mm. Is that helpful, you find? Uh, telehealth appointments for speech pathologists? Like, do you it, have to... It can be. Okay. It, it depends on the client. Uh, I, I would find for those clients who are more mild to moderate and got and they have their cognition intact, mm. I would find, like, telehealth would be suitable for them. Uh, mm. Sometimes for the more complex clients, I find it's much easier to do that in person. But, like, for example, if we were doing a therapy which was a bit more... Just about talking, for example, our social worker interacting with the client mm. or perhaps uh, an occupation or it could be any of our clinicians who are having a more sort of educational, uh, conversational mm. uh, appointment as opposed to a physical hands-on one. Like That's mm. certainly an option because uh, the client doesn't have to leave their own home. If uh, when we visit people's in, in their homes, uh, we need to arrange transport. Uh, there are government cars, but then when you have a dozen clinicians fighting for the same two yeah. cars, there's a lot of logistics involved. Yeah. Um, but it, having said that, there's also logistics involved in even organizing the telehealth. You think it would be simple, but then you need a computer, you need a room, etc. Mm. But 
but it it is an, a newer option and it's certainly something that was not available a long time ago uh, for something like psychology for example uh, where it is a very talky based uh, mm. treatment uh, you could certainly uh, do that by telehealth and I've done that myself when I was having a rough time living in regional South Australia. Mm. I was living in this regional town, but I was having a chat to a psychologist who was in South Australia. Yeah, in South Australia, in Adelaide. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, yeah, it's certainly, certainly mm. an option. And certainly during the peak of COVID, uh, use mm. of telehealth increased yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've used telehealth as well in terms of counseling and Mm -hmm. I'm still doing that right now because um, some places in the world, you know, you just can't get out. You still can't get out. So Mm. um, they can't access their psychologists or therapists. Mm. Some services are still not Mm. up and running yet Mm. and some clinics have actually shut down. So people are just really turning towards um, telehealth and Zoom Mm -hmm. quite a bit. Um, so would you mind sharing with us what the majority of your caseload looks like? I would say perhaps two thirds or more, uh, of the time I am dealing with people who've had strokes. Mm. Uh, and yeah, strokes are complicated. Like when something happens to your brain, uh, there can be a lot of things that can happen, but, uh, as a speech pathologist, I'm just, and all of the clinicians are involved. And yep. in the hospital, of course, you got all the different types of doctors, right. all the nursing staff involved. There's a lot of staff in the hospital, as you can imagine. Mm. We have a smaller team in the community-based rehab. But I would say a lot of the time I'm, pers- in my role, I'm dealing with strokes. Of course, the physios would be dealing with broken bones a lot more mm. as well. Yep, yep. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And... Who, well, what kind of clients do you enjoy working with the most, do you think? I think I enjoy working with clients who are motivated and take agency in what they want to achieve. After you've had a stroke, for example, anything that our brain does can have deficits mm-hmm. so that could be how you use your lips and tongue to say the words mm-hmm. it could be using your hands or your legs to move about and some of the more subtle things is how you think or mm-hmm. how your memory is working uh the, the, the complex tasks like you were describing before to put your key in a door there's all these little micro movements mm-hmm. and someone might be physically able to move their hands and arm in that uh, to, to, to physically move their hands and do that, but they can't plan the movements. Uh, they can't coordinate the mm. movements to figure out what's the first movement, what's the second movement to achieve that 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 goal. I guess. Mm. So, um, strokes are very tricky, and yeah. uh, <laughs> so I'm dealing with the more communications, less so with the swallow once they've left the hospital. Mm. But uh, the clients I enjoy working with the most are the ones who understand they have deficits mm. and they're motivated to get it back mm. or to do whatever they can. Mm. And they put in their time and they're willing to work every day. Mm. Sometimes you have people who have deficits and they cannot speak like they used to be able to. Uh, they cannot communicate like they used to be able to. But they just don't make much effort. Mm. And that can be related to many things. It could be related to their personality and their values, who they were before this event. Mm. It could be related to their cognition and their planning or uh, how they view the world because like something's gone wrong with their sort of executive functioning right. from the stroke. Uh Perhaps some people, they just give up or they feel sometimes they're highly depressed or mm. going through a, an acute stage of grief. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, some people have strokes. They get paralyzed on one side or uh, one side of their body or one arm or one leg. Or uh, yeah. There's a lot of physical things going on. A lot of, some people get very fatigued. Like mm. as the brain is repairing itself, their body might shut down for months and months and they will just be so, so exhausted and tired. Really? Yes. See, I've never actually considered that before. Mm-hmm. So they sleep a lot or yeah, well, they, they just get have no energy? Both. 
so frequently people, they need to have frequent little rests throughout the day. Sometimes people, while they're highly motivated, they might be trying to do too much and they overwhelm themselves. And then if they overwhelm themselves on a Monday, they might not be good till Thursday after that. Really? Mm -hmm. And so who supports them with that? Or is that something they learn over time by themselves? On our team, the occupational therapist is the one who discusses and manages the fatigue a lot. And to make the old analogy, uh, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Frequently, we are providing exercises and our professional clinical recommendations to people, the things to help them manage day to day, but not always is that being adhered to, or sometimes it cannot be adhered to. Uh, Often people have uh, complex home situations. Often uh, they have complex health uh, uh, circumstances, which doesn't allow them to do the things we would recommend. Mm. Uh, So often there's a lot of appointments and Mm. sometimes something completely external like COVID-19 could happen or who knows, like something completely out of the blue could happen, which impacts on someone's ability to do quote unquote the best thing or the most productive thing that would help them yeah Mm. wow and sometimes people are very keen to get back to work sometimes they have children sometimes they are caring for someone else so what in theory is the best way to manage their whatever's going on with their bodies and their lives is not always achievable Mm. Yeah, there, there are a lot of things grabbing this this limited mm. um, tank of attention. Uh, sorry, energy mm. and attention actually. Mm-hmm. And I guess when you're struggling with your own physiology and mm. your own psychology mm-hmm. and cognition, um, there is less capacity to deal with mm-hmm. the demands of the world and yeah. expectations of others. Yeah. And since you just said psychology as well, a lot of people have low mood for a long time, especially after having a stroke or sometimes even like I mentioned before, breaking a leg or some sort of Mm. loss of previous role or ability. Of course, that takes a big role, a big, uh, it takes a toll on their identity, I guess. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And a lot of people just as they are recovering from their stroke, uh, their mood, uh, might be different, uh, their ability to initiate, they might be depressed. They might may or may not acknowledge that as well. Mm-hmm. So often we, are, especially in my community rehab job, we, um, Manage, we are managing clients who are newly taking antidepressants and sort of going through that phase where their body's getting adjusted to the, the neurochemical changes, I guess. It sounds like something happens and everything gets thrown out of whack. Absolutely. And jumbled up in the head. Uh-huh. And then it's just this phase of this time of like mm. trying to figure it out and save whatever that's you consolidated. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. and, and, and just trying to make the best of it. And mm. do you see any cases where, or have you had many clients where they've achieved almost full autonomy from before the event or at least reached your goals to a satisfactory level? Certainly. Uh, in my community rehab job, we don't get to see them for that long. Sometimes it's four weeks, sometimes it's eight weeks, oh, sometimes nice. it's 12 weeks. And that's just policy, I guess, is what the government can afford to provide. Certainly with some clients who may have the more mild to moderate deficits, mm. they're happy to get on with their life. They're Perhaps they're 80 or 90% able to do what they were able to do previously. And they're happy with that. They're realistic. Mm. A lot of our clients are quite old. Uh, Mm. Some of them are quite philosophical Mm. where they realize like if I'm in, if I'm in my seventies or my eighties and I can still see my grandkids and my family, that's still doing pretty good. Even if my, my speech doesn't sound the same, or even if I can't use my, my, my shoulders, and my arms, like I used to be able to, they find things which give them value and meaning mm. and enjoyment out of life. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes we do have really complex clients and unfortunately not much, gains are made Mm. and that can be 
these are usually in really, really complex clients with uh, lots of comorbidities, lots of mm. health issues going on. Uh, sometimes there's um, environmental issues going on. Uh, yeah. We've seen a few clients who've come from overseas who don't speak the language. And then that adds an extra layer of complication. Uh, if we're trying to give cognitive rehab or linguistic rehab, like language rehab, but through an interpreter, uh, it makes life a lot more difficult oh, wow. as well. I can imagine. And mm. you have a background in teaching language. Mm -hmm. So when you are faced with clients that don't speak English or don't speak English very much, mm -hmm. how do you navigate this area? Given that you do have you know, background knowledge in how the brain works with languages and uh -huh. your speech pathologist um, uh -huh. expertise. I guess as both a former ESL teacher, English as a second language teacher and a speech pathologist and also someone who's learnt a second language. I, oh, I lived overseas, true. I learnt Spanish and I remember mm. what it was like learning that language or navigating day-to-day -day life when I was living overseas in a language that wasn't my native one. Mm. I was certainly capable, but uh, I wouldn't say I was fluent. Mm. Uh, taking all that, in, all those considerations into perspective, just simple things like one idea at a time. <laughs> Like right now, we are having lots of complex conversations and lots of complex ideas are coming out. But like if someone, for example, doesn't speak English as their first language and they've got cognitive like understanding uh, difficulties or memory difficulties, mm. uh, that might mean holding one idea in your mind while thinking about the next one. Mm. Uh, that might not be able to have... They might not have enough working memory capacity to mm. to be able to discuss multiple topics at the same time. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I worked with refugees for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, refugees who have suffered um, some traumas. Mm -hmm. And I remember having to work with them um, and a translator, mm -hmm. especially the ones that don't speak English very fluently mm -hmm. or at all. Mm -hmm. And with those who have had head injuries, mm. documented head injuries. Um, it was very interesting working with them because, um, you know, from, from what you meant, you're mentioning, mm. I'm just reminded that I remember having to actually, for myself, really break down the content of what I want to, well, yeah, content of what I want to communicate with them mm. um, about on a piece of paper mm. and make sure that I track that because mm. With the back and forth of the translators, mm. um, you know, the translate the translating that was happening, mm. I also have to make sure that they can only retain a certain amount of information mm -hmm. and I can't overwhelm them because that might trigger, mm. re-trigger some traumas and they might get re-traumatized. And that's when you know that amygdala is like flaring up. The PFC, the executive functioning part mm. of the brain will shut down mm. and then they can't, they can't work with me anymore and I need that part of the brain to be working so I mm. can't scare them. Into, yeah, I can't overwhelm them, basically. So it was, it just... It sounds like you're trying to break down what is the core, most essential idea or theme that wants to be discussed and yes. spending your energy on that. And not going too far, not mm -hmm. digressing, not getting excited. So mm. I had to put it in a piece of paper mm. just so that I remind myself mm. not to overdo it with mm. them. Because, yeah, yeah it so takes you... time and it's energy exactly. as well. Yeah. Certainly. And for example, at the moment, we are spe seeing a client who's very complex. And, uh, who, all of our interactions with this client is through an interpreter. Mm. And when I'm doing my speech therapy, I try to keep it one idea at a time. Mm. And I guess I've got the benefit of my, my, ling my linguistic education, being a former language learner and teacher and speech pathology uh, education, mm. I, I understand that so you can only talk about one idea at a time. Mm. But I, unfortunately, when I see the other clinicians working with this client, they're trying to have a conversation like we are having now, mm. which is multifaceted. Mm. And unfortunately for that client, you cannot be speaking about multiple ideas about the past, the present, the future, yeah. all at once. We're, we're, first, you're going to do this. You almost need to break it down. Look, what are the two or three main things I want you to take away from this uh, today, this yeah. appointment today, and write that down Yeah. so they can refer back to it later. And it, but even that's not always 
uh, doesn't always help. For example, this class is just describing her vision or specifically her perception has been impaired. Okay. So even when it's written in her language, her, ability, her brain's ability to to understand, uh, to recognize all the little individual squiggles and lines mm. and to, to recognize the shape of what the words they are, um, that's also impaired. So, mm. so in these cases, we really need to work together. Mm. Uh, and we're all the clinicians. Uh, every week I give a handover email and for that client I just discussed, I am saying in bold, in capital letters, when speaking to this client, one idea at a time, full stop. (laughs) Concept checked, full stop. Uh, Clarify if you're talking about the past, the present, the future. That's not necessary. It's so necessary. And that's something we're taking for granted. If we're talking about, so you had this accident, it's infecting your life in this way today, but in a few weeks you're going to see a neuropsychologist. There's quite a few concepts yeah. going on right yeah. there. And for someone whose memory is absolutely shot, mm-hmm. uh, that's she's not, not going to walk away from that conversation yeah. with all those complex ideas. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So you're a bit of a mediator as well. Sometimes. You, yeah. yeah. For, like a spokesperson. I guess. For the client's abilities. Yeah. Uh, also like the occupational therapist might yeah. take a similar role when it comes to cognition mm. or it comes to memory for example or fatigue as well mm. so often we try to see a client when they come into the clinic we might try and get two appointments for that visit just to get because uh, nice. it's easier to coordinate two visits than three visits for example nice. um, but that having the client see two clinicians for one hour each it could be physically or emotionally overwhelming mm. uh, with the speech and the occupational therapy we are often doing a lot of cognitive or linguistic sort of rehab and mm. uh, it's emotionally draining yeah you know when you're trying to cram and when you're trying to study yeah. and you're trying so hard you're and you're struggling just get, uh-huh so yeah. imagine going through an hour of that and then you have to go do an hour of Something similar but different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it sounds really draining. Mm. And I'm wondering what you do when you experience clients who are having a bit of a... During the session mm-hmm. or who, who have come from a, a different session into mm. your clinic. Mm. Um, who are struggling emotionally or psychologically in terms of their abilities. How do you manage that? Mm-hmm. If it's too much from one day, some days you might just have to cut it short. And how do you pick up on when those days are going to be? Hopefully, I'd be able to pick up on it. Like, like what? What are the cues? Body language. Sometimes they will tell you. Uh, sometimes they'll have blank looks on their faces, okay. or just more processing time, or they'll just start nodding and smiling and not really engaging. You yeah. know, when you're having a conversation with someone and they're sort of not quite present, mm-hmm. like that can happen. Or they might get a bit grumpy, or they just uh, might not want to interact. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, like these are little things that you notice for anyone when they're a bit tired or grumpy or overwhelmed or. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might get a bit more emotional. Uh, you might not react in one way you would expect them to. Do they get upset? Yeah. And how do you deal with that when they do? Try to have a bit of empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, acknowledge how they're feeling. Like, mm-hmm. this is frustrating. I know you've gone through so much. Uh, remember, a lot of these people are going through pretty cute phases of grief as well. Yeah. Like perhaps just even two months ago, some of them might be young enough, like in their fifties, for example, and they're mm-hmm. still, they were the main breadwinner for the house. Some mm-hmm. of them come from highly powerful positions. Perhaps they were in managerial positions in their companies. Right. Uh, and they've gone from being the main breadwinner, uh, being, a being a parent, mm-hmm. um, being a problem solver, someone who's respected to, and their whole life is transformed. Mm. So now they are perhaps completely dependent on others. Mm. They are unable to complete uh, t- basic things mm. like opening a door or getting up or mm. saying hello or I love you to, to someone you care about. Like little things that we take for granted. Uh, any of the, any or all of that could be taken away. So 
in those cases, like we, the best thing to do, or I hope it's the best thing to do, to acknowledge their feelings. Mm. And like I say, I understand this is frustrating. Is this too much for you today? Uh, how about we leave it for another day? How about I, I give you some tasks that you could do when you're feeling better? Mm. Something else I do. Ideally, I would love to have my clients doing several hours of speech therapy per day. <laughs> but the reality of it's they're not going to do it. Yeah. It's tedious. Uh, some people would do it uh, occasionally. Mm. Or they'll do an hour or two hours. You know, like some people might study for a few hours a day. Yeah. yeah and they're happy to do it. But others will just drag their feet and not want to yeah. do it. Uh, I try to start a bare minimum. Okay. Could you do five minutes? Yeah. Could you do ten minutes? Uh, could you do 20 minutes? Mm. Uh, or if I split it up into different tasks and I try to, if I told someone I want you to do two hours of speech therapy a day, it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. But if I, if I serve it in achievable chunks, yeah. like a 15, could you do 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the afternoon? That's all of a sudden, it's not so overwhelming. And it's empowering once mm. you achieve five minutes and then you go like, then I can do 10. I can do six. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good um, psychology trick behind trying to get people to do their tasks um, and their practices. Uh, with with counseling, we do the same thing. Yeah. If we have homework for clients, sometimes, uh, depending on what the case is, we do the same thing. We're like, maybe it's a good idea, you know, when you need to encourage them mm. to have better self-care practices mm. or start something new for themselves. So mm. we're like, all right, just go for uh, meet someone socially at mm. least once a fortnight mm-hmm. i mean that might be daunting for some people mm. but once they achieve that they're like okay maybe maybe try once a week or something mm. like that or meditation mm-hmm. try for like five minutes a day mm. and it doesn't sound so scary it sounds mm. doable mm. and i take a similar approach like for example if someone can only do five tasks or if, if the goal is to do whatever the task could be um but if they're only getting one of, of the five that's right that's right we got one out of five today let's try it again tomorrow and try and get two out of five so the same micro incremental approach right. uh, uh, i find i i use a lot yeah and I try to remind people, like, to, perhaps today we can only get one out of five of whatever the task is, but perhaps next week we might get two. Mm. And I've constantly tried to get the clients to remember how they were when this first happened. Okay. Some people, wait, when they're in hospital, they literally cannot communicate. They cannot understand language. Wow. They might be getting food through a tube down their throat or in their mm. belly or... Mm. Uh, they might be eating mushy sort of food because yeah. they've lost their ability to chew and swallow safely. So they're giving them baby food, for lack of a mm. better word. We call it pureed. Yeah. Or yeah. Like highly sort of thick and... <laughs> the yummy like, Heinz jars. Yeah. Lots of things like your yogurts and your custards, mm. etc. But it's not like eating a steak and chips. <laughs> but still, like... Obviously, during that very acute phase in their recovery, uh, it's quite traumatic of mm. course like being they're quite helpless but i do remind people that can you remember how you were a few months ago versus now and that might be like light and day mm. and whatever that time period is like imagine how you're going to be in two months more right so okay. try and keep that hope alive like try and give them some meaning yeah yeah and another thing i do is this is throughout the service. We try to work on goals which are meaningful for the client to mm-hmm. do. And we're constantly negotiating. Like, what can't you do now? What gives you trouble? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you like to work on? Mm-hmm. So giving it's sort of going back to that discussion we had about the leisure therapist. Mm-hmm. Like, like so what's something you would like to do? And sometimes it's really vague. Sometimes it's very specific. Mm. Uh, sometimes like communication wise like, if it's very specific like, I want to have a communication uh, I want to have a conversation with my friends uh, at the coffee shop and mm. and perhaps they can't talk like they used to but they can still interact 
So we can help them with little phrases or like you know, even little things like mm-hmm, nodding your head, showing your interest, uh, giving eye contact, yeah. uh, little words you can do to, to help them participate. Tell me more or mm. something like that. I'm listening. That sounds interesting. Sometimes people, their, their goals are very vague. Just, I just want to talk good. But <laughs> <laughs> that might be very multifaceted. Right. Does that involve how they are paying attention? Does it involve them being able to understand? Does it involve them being able to say the word? Does it involve them being able to think of the right word? Does it involve them being able to understand complex or abstract ideas? So, oh, so that you, can mean so many things. It can be, yeah. And how do you figure that out? We've got the education and uh, I guess we, we go in there and we... Like Sherlock Holmes, we try to look at the person's presentation and mm. there are models and theories of the okay. mind. But uh, as I'm sure you're aware in counseling and psychology, like mm. the mind is marvelously complex mm. and there's certain things you might expect, certain things you might not expect. Mm. And then there's, just to throw a curveball into the mix, things like just the person's personality or their values as well. Mm. So... Mm. I wonder what the mental health predispositions of certain clients that you get um, look like prior to the event um, for those who are motivated Mm -hmm. versus those who aren't motivated. It certainly plays a role. A lot of people have stroke or illnesses which are due to lifestyle Mm-hmm. For example, obesity, drugs, alcohol, uncontrolled diabetes, etc. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, if you're not looking after yourself, you're more likely to get sick. Mm-hmm. And if you're not looking after yourself, like why are people not looking after themselves? Is okay. it because they were never educated? Because they don't believe they are worth it? Uh, who mm-hmm. knows? Mm-hmm. So, and on the other token, sometimes you can have marvelously healthy people. And something mm-hmm. horrible, they can get hit by a bus or they could have a stroke. Yeah. They can grow a tumor. Like, yeah. Yeah. So we do see a difference between, for example, the person who has had a lifestyle influence event right. versus someone who's just had something unfortunate. Right. And as socioeconomic might play a role in this, not exclusively but it certainly could mm, like socioeconomic yeah. education and their uh, in the environment in which they were brought up before yeah so for example if something has happened to this very highly functioning uh, sort of member of society before usually they are really motivated to get back and mm. they will do whatever it takes uh not always i, I am overly generalizing here yeah. but sometimes if you've got someone who they'll poor choices in lifestyle has led to this event mm-hmm. it's almost like they might not think it's worth the effort right or yeah. they may not think they are worth the effort to to, to 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 do this very difficult thing rehabilitation's tough yeah 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 and so for some people it might doing the same task when they were before they got very sick, it might have been overwhelming for them anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. I mean, if if mm. if someone struggles with mm. self care, mm. they are more likely to struggle with mm. rehab. Mm. Um, and I suppose I I'm also wondering for those who may have had an okay lifestyle before, or mm. maybe not great, mm. but possible, mm-hmm. and then the event happened. Mm. Um, uh, have you ever seen cases where there's a bit of a, a shift and yes. they're like, you know what? I'm going to get my life in order. Uh, we certainly have seen that. And that's quite heartwarming, actually, when someone, mm. when they realize like, shit, I was not controlling my diabetes. I was not looking after myself. I was eating all this rubbish food. Mm. Or I was drinking too much. It's like a turning point or something. And they realize yeah. perhaps... When people are in the hospitals, they during the acute phase, they're quite helpless. So they're very dependent. That's why they're in hospital, right? Because right. they need the help of others to survive. They could be for medical or other reasons. Uh, and some people use that event as a, as a fork in the road. Mm-hmm. And it makes them realize what's important. 
my children, my family, or doing something meaningful. Yeah. Uh, could be walking the dog. Uh, could be watching the Broncos lose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it could be something like that. But for some people, they certainly do use this as a turning point and mm. they realize... If they continue as they were, mm. perhaps they're only going to have a few more years of life mm. as opposed to they might have 20 more years of life. Right. So that's yeah. certainly uh, what a success story, which we do see sometimes. Okay. Unfortunately, we do also see sometimes perhaps they left it too long as well. Mm. But uh, you got to take the good news when you can, right? And, yeah, 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 mm. yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that, mm-hmm. Kane. Um, before we end our podcast today, mm. I was wondering if you'd like to share with us how you manage mm. yourself and self-care when you deal with um, such such cases where your heart goes out to the clients mm-hmm. and you're you know you're you're feeling really empathetic because some mm. of them does mm. sound really heartwarming or heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, how do you manage that as a practitioner? I would call it just general self-care. You know, the stuff that we're supposed to do. Mm. Exercise, sleep well, Mm. socialize. If you're having a bad time emotionally, talk to your mates or talk Mm. it over with someone. Uh, I'm pretty good at not taking work home related Mm. to the clients, I guess, or the patients, Mm. because that's just constantly getting turned over. And, of course, Mm. sometimes you get a heartbreaking story and it might leave you a bit down for a day or two, especially when someone gets ill. People die. People die sometimes, like sometimes, especially in hospitals, they can die at any moment. Sometimes in rehab, when you think they're getting better, there can be another moment. And we all sort of take that uh, a bit badly for a day or so. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's the job. And we wouldn't be doing it if... Some people can't hack it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like Some... People, they decide they, they'll get the qualification, but they might prefer to work with children or in a happier sort of environment. I certainly think there are def- different sorts of personalities mm. which, uh, which are more suited to be working in the adult caseload. Yeah. And I think those ones probably need a bit of resilience. Mm. Um, and... It would benefit them from being able to self-reflect on how they are feeling uh, when these things happen. And the healthcare system, whilst it has its shortcomings, mm-hmm. is pretty big on monitor yourself. Like we have supervision, which is like mm. we speak to a mentor, someone who's more experienced. Uh, they encourage psychological input uh, mm. as well. During COVID, uh, the organization I work for, they offered six uh, psychological appointments for people going through a rough time because, oh. as you remember, it was kind of terrible for a while and we were completely distant and isolated. Yeah, yeah. But to answer your question, how do I, how do I deal with this emotional burden, I guess? I... I exercise. That helps mm. me a lot. Uh, when I exercise, I I sleep better. Mm. I feel better. It's all the endorphins and serotonin. Exactly. Yeah. I feel better. I probably walk with my shoulders back and my chin up a bit higher and perhaps yeah. with a bit more cockiness in my step. <laughs> and, uh, and I've uh, seen that in you. So <laughs> I believe you. You're not making this up. Yeah. Uh, exercise helps me a lot, uh, especially if I'm really stressed. It's just a chance to blow off yeah. that steam. Uh, I also try to sleep. Mm. You know, I know we're supposed to sleep seven or eight hours. Sometimes I stay up too late on my phone, but like in the background, that is a goal to get good sleep because I do notice after a few days, if I don't sleep well, my mm. performance drops. I get yeah. snappier. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. And just cognitively, like sometimes with people's healthcare, there's a lot going on and we need to have our wits about us. Yeah. And we need we need to be able to write reports using yes. all those fancy, yeah. schmancy, psychological. Or, deadlines as well. Yeah, yeah. And when you're sort of under pressure, like, yeah. Uh, if, if I haven't slept well for a couple of days, that whole process is a lot more difficult than it needs to be. 
So I try yeah. to sleep. I try to exercise. I try to eat well. Uh, you know, like things like alcohol. Like mm. I used to drink a lot when I was younger. I'm pretty good with it nowadays. But <laughs> simple things like don't drink a bottle of wine on a school night. <laughs> <laughs> or if uh, wise advice. <laughs> <laughs> or but that's just something through my own little journey I've noticed as well. Mm. If I am feeling shitty and overwhelmed, it's a lot more productive to go work out for an hour yeah. than it is to drink a bottle of wine. Yeah, yeah. And you can do that when you come over and we hang out. Yes. For a day. <laughs> but um, I try not to take stuff home. Sometimes yeah. we do, but just the general self-care. And you have, it sounds like you have an internal um, moder- monitoring system where mm. you know when you could use more sleep or you know that you need to... Mm do more physical activity or you know that you're impacted yeah and i guess a benefit of this job is we are frequently telling people to do all that stuff i just described this is true right Uh, so practice what you preach it's yeah uh a client i saw yesterday we probably spent about half an hour just even talking about uh How's her sleep? How's she eating? Uh, is she drinking much water? That's not my role at all on the team. That's just common life advice, right? Mm. But uh, this client, her cognition is severely impaired. Like the ability right. to sort of take, to understand those causes and effects. Uh, like if you don't eat a lot, then you don't have energy. And if you don't have right. energy, you're going to feel rubbish. You're going to feel lethargic. And, and then that it might lead to... There's probably a depression going on also. And if you're feeling lethargic and you have no energy, you're not going to be able to participate in your rehab. If you don't participate in your rehab, you're not doing anything meaningful. Mm. You can see how Mm. it's all... Do you draw? Do you make it visual for them? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I, I... Yeah, sometimes, I guess. Yeah. 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 But uh, sometimes we are just telling them telling like these basic sort of things yeah. like and it sounds basic you know Kane but mm. like we often take them for granted mm. and we overlook them because mm. oh I can catch up on that tomorrow mm. or I'll just you know go for a run on mm. the weekend or mm. be, but we in 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 the days or the hours mm. until we get around to mm. sleeping better or you know exercising more or eating better um we just deteriorate we just keep deteriorating hoping Mm. for that weekend Mm. to catch up on everything but Mm. why put ourselves through that Mm. next few shitty days when you can just kind of perk yourself up a little bit Mm. and steadily cruise around along until the weekend so you can actually have a good time you want to enjoy your weekend not just sleeping recover yeah (laughs) yeah Mm. thank you thank you so much um do you have any key takeaway messages for our listeners Especially in regards to my rehab goal, you got to find something that someone's interested in. It's got to be meaningful for mm. them. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Just if it's meaningful for them, I guess in the bad old days of healthcare, doctors or clinicians would say, "Righto, you're going to do this because I, that's what I, as a, an authority figure, are telling yeah, you to do." Yeah. And uh, you'd it's, probably know... It's extrinsic. It's not intrinsic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I'm sure y- you would be more aware. Uh, it's, I don't know. You can tell me. Like, Is there literature relating to when someone is doing something that they want to be doing, that mm. it's motivated to do, that they, it's meaningful for them, mm. they're more likely to do it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Like, certain mm. parts of your brain light up when there's purpose mm. and meaning involved. Mm. And a lot of that has to do with when the purpose and meaning is actually um, associated mm. with other people. Mm. So in some form of benevolence mm. or, you know, children, mm. family members, friends, you know, partners and things mm. like that. So when the meaning is associated with some sort of social association or giving or um, compassion, mm-hmm. then the the meaning and the purpose tends to stand for longer. Mm-hmm. They tend to be stronger. Um, and, you know, sometimes we can feel motivated. We can feel like this is, this is a good purpose. It's mm-hmm. quite meaningful. I'm going to channel my next few years of my life mm-hmm. to do this mm-hmm. for whatever reason. But it might not be... S- Mm, solid enough in mm. that sense mm. where you 
want to you can continue to pursue it even when you get a few hit, um, hits mm. or obstacles you've been knocked off the road a few times mm. sometimes it's like no what screw it but if there's there are people involved mm. that you want to help or be part of mm. and there's love and compassion in mm. there um, you are more likely to get up and get back on that road mm. you know even though it's so hard mm. so yes yeah, <laughs> to answer your question mm. um, what about for people who who have or who know of people who've had um, accidents or experienced strokes um, had certain you know aneurysms and things like that mm. people that end up being your clients mm. their friends and family members what can you tell them in terms of how to expect their responses, how to expect their um, abilities, and how to expect their mental health. Hmm. Yes. Uh, could you repeat the question a bit? Okay, so, so yeah. basically, I'm um, sorry about that. Yeah. Maybe it was a bit convoluted. Yeah. So you have um, the like, family members. Uh, how the, the family members' mental health might be impacted? Or? Maybe that is a good thing to talk about as well, but also um, just just how they see the patient or the client, what they should consider, because sometimes people don't see what's going on. All these things you've talked to me about, yeah. they don't really occur to someone immediately when mm. they, you know, mm. when they they see their friend or family member mm. after a stroke. Like I know, I, I lived with my grandmother who's mm. had two strokes right mm. and she also had dementia and mm. schizophrenia mm. so we work with what we see at face value mm. but in the mind especially when you're younger you don't mm. know you don't have the education mm. you don't know what it's like for them mm. so you do the best in terms of like being compassionate and caring mm. but you know you do get frustrated this mm. and that so how do people cope with that by mm. putting themselves in the patient's shoes this is tricky, especially if the patient's with dementia or some sort of cognitive decline or perhaps some sort of executive functioning uh, deficit in their brain. Like the partners don't understand why does he keep doing this? Mm. Or they don't understand. We've talked about this a thousand times. And as a clinician, sometimes our role is to educate the family members that this person cannot think like he used to or his initiation, his ability to get up and do something, his ability to understand uh, cause and effect consequences, it, it's impaired or uh, their, their ability to see uh, from the perspective of how someone else might feel might mm. be impaired. Mm, that's and, true. That's and, another part of the brain as well. Yeah. And... Sometimes we have to provide that education. Like the family member, the husband and wife, they just might understand it. My hu husband or wife is being a jerk. Right. On the surface, yes. But like when we look into it, uh, we sort of, all right, uh, this part of the brain was damaged. And with that, we might expect X, Y, or Z to happen. I suspect that... Uh, something might be impaired. It could be memory. It could be initiation. It could be mm. some sort of a executive. It could be their ability to understand complex ideas. Mm. And trying to help the family to understand those deficits so that they don't um, like get an emotional reaction. Mm. Of course, it's still frustrating no matter what. Yes, yeah. for sure. Uh, but giving them the knowledge to to understand how it is so it's more complex than he's being a jerk yeah, like yeah. it's sort of taking a neuropsychological approach it's like mm. this was damaged and this is the effect and yeah. this might explain this behavior and it almost sort of humanizes it a bit yeah like if someone lost a couple of his toes of like, course he's gonna be running soon <laughs> yes right. uh and fine getting that information would uh it, it can be beneficial and yeah. uh, when the family members understand that they it almost gives them permission to be a bit more forgiving yeah or it's, it's as well yeah it's it's not a personal thing mm. you mm. would hope mm. but if mm. that was happening i'd try and get the gp involved it, uh, gps are involved 
all the time uh, through right. both of my jobs. Uh, they're like the case manager, I guess. Like when someone's discharged from a hospital, like the, D- the GP gets a discharge summary and they follow up and they decide, help decide how we're going to manage this client. Well, what else is going to help this uh, client? And it could be a referral to a service like the community-based rehab or getting a NGO involved or getting yeah. a psychologist involved. Uh, I sort of hinted before that uh, sometimes it's not just the person who's been ill who has mental health effects, but also mm. the family. Yeah. Maybe they've lost their role as well. Uh, perhaps they are now seeing themselves in a the capacity as a carer. Yeah. Uh, someone, a carer of someone who's dependent mm. and... Uh, taking the the client to all the appointments yeah uh if someone's having like troubling behavior kind of like we were just talking about a minute ago yeah that that stress and that burden can really build up uh, and take an effect on the carer yeah as well so um gps are involved with not just looking after the person who got sick but also the greater family mm. getting mental health involved getting counseling involved mm. social work mm. so um my recommendations would be try to understand what the deficits are so the lost perspective yeah yeah what and, the person can't do anymore like yeah or what they might need help with mm. uh get help from the gp if you're having a rough time get the gp involved and they're trained they go to medical school for all these years and they get paid yeah. a small fortune they <laughs> use their services <laughs> they know a thing or two you, you would hope Trust so them, <laughs> yeah, hopefully yeah, yeah. And if you don't like what that GP said go find another one exactly uh, yeah. second opinion is always recommended uh. um, I think we should probably wrap up soon mm-hmm. thank you again thank you so much mm-hmm. for your time it's been fun I've learned a lot I mm-hmm. mean I've known you for a few years mm-hmm. now and I've heard you talk about these things mm-hmm. but just sitting here and hearing you explain everything mm-hmm. just listening mm-hmm. um, I'm learning so much more and it's it's been it's been it's been awesome thank you um, and thank you for sharing this space mm-hmm. with us here on science of the soul.